This is an ABC podcast. Once again, Venezuelans have taken to the streets, hoping to bring down President Nicolas Maduro. The face of hope for change in the troubled nation is Juan Guaido. Today he declared himself the country's legitimate leader. Australia has joined the US, UK and more than a dozen other nations recognising Venezuela's opposition leader Juan Guaido as its legitimate president. Venezuela's self-proclaimed president began his day at church. A blessing from the priest recognising his new position. Venezuela is in political and economic turmoil. There are two people claiming to be the legitimate president. Nicolas Maduro and the opposition leader Juan Guaido. And if that's not enough, the international community has weighed in. The United States, the EU, Australia and Canada supporting the opposition leader and Russia and China supporting Nicolas Maduro. And economically, things aren't any better. Despite having the largest oil reserves in the world, the Venezuelan economy is in freefall. Inflation is out of control, food and medicines are in short supply, and the number of Venezuelans fleeing the country is skyrocketing. So how did Venezuela end up with two presidents and a collapsing economy? Hello, this is Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabel Quince. Revision has followed the political machinations in Venezuela for over a decade, and links to those earlier programs are on our website. In this program, we begin with one of the claimants to the presidency, Nicolas Maduro, who took over from the hugely popular president, Hugo Chavez, in 2013. The people of Venezuela are voting on a successor to the late president, Hugo Chavez, who died last month. Though Mr Chavez might no longer be here, he has dominated this vote from the start. Do they want more Chavez-esque socialist reforms under his hand-picked successor, Nicolas Maduro, or do they want a radical change in direction under the opposition's candidate, Enrique Capriles? When Chavez passed away, he handed it over to Nicolás Maduro, which surprised many Venezuelans because he wasn't seen as the most competent or the most dynamic of Chavez's lieutenants. Daniel Landsberg-Rodriguez, adjunct professor at the Kellogg School of Management and political columnist for the Venezuelan newspaper El Nacional. Nicolás Maduro dedicated his victory to his mentor, Venezuela's late leader, Hugo Chávez, but the year only won by a narrow margin. Nicolás Maduro won 50.7% of the votes cast and the opposition candidate 49.1%. He was someone who was always there, who very rarely said much, and who tended to just agree lockstep with Chavez. But at the same time, Maduro's sole claim to legitimacy, the reason he won that first election, was not because of who he was, but because Chavez had said, this is my successor, this is the person who is going to take my revolution forward. So people were voting for Chavez in death, rather than for Maduro himself. That has made it very difficult for for Maduro to break from Chavez's signature policies, policies that required significant subsidies to the costs and prices of general goods, that required giving significant amounts of national money to or subsidized oil to countries like Cuba, like Bolivia, many of the Caribbean countries, even for a while through CITGO to American cities. It was something that was 
already untenable when oil was over $100 a barrel. Venezuela was actually in recession in 2013. When that income stream started dissipating, Maduro was very slow and has continued to be very slow to publicly abandon anything that Chavez was doing when he died, when oil was at over $100 a barrel. The president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, is facing the largest wave of protests against his government. The protests began earlier this month, with many outraged at Venezuela's soaring crime rate and a tanking economy. By 2014, the Venezuelan economy was in recession, and since then it's only got worse. Professor of Political Science Javier Corrales is the author of Dragon in the Tropics, Venezuela and the Legacy of Hugo Chavez. I think most people who study economic crisis would tell you that this is one of the most harrowing economic crises since at least the early 20th century. It is a crisis that combines a very high level of inflation, now hyperinflation, together with major scarcity. So it has a combination of the worst aspects of capitalist systems that lose control of their monetary policy, leading to hyperinflation, but also the worst aspects of communist systems, which are typically characterized by shortages and scarcity. So suddenly in Venezuela, the products that exist are completely unaffordable, and very few products do exist, they cannot be found. So if they can be found, they're unaffordable. By 2017, Venezuela is registering levels of extreme poverty back to levels that predate the Chavez era. Extreme poverty and also a health crisis of significant proportion because among the many products that disappear from the shelves are ordinary medicines as well as more sophisticated medications. And this led to a serious health crisis. Essentially, Venezuela is experiencing the type of economic crisis that we only see in countries undergoing war. What is the cause of this? Because clearly there have been a series of US sanctions going right back to the Obama era. Plus you've got a drop in the oil price. How much is due to any form of government's management and, and how much is also due to outside factors like the plunge in the oil prices and the various US sanctions that have been imposed on Venezuela? Good question. Well, you know, I do have um, a strong opinion about this. Many countries that are oil states have experienced the same decline in the price of oil and none experiences economic crisis. So we can rule out that because other oil states survived. So that's not it. The second hypothesis is the economic sanctions by the United States. But the economic sanctions by the United States up until last week were a very mild. There were sanctions directed at individuals who were banned from doing certain businesses. The bulk of Venezuela's trade, its sales of oil to the United States, was never affected up until last week. So the sanctions, in my opinion, have nothing to do with the economic crisis. 
And that leaves us with the third option, which is economic mismanagement. And I am fully on that camp. Even economists who are sympathetic to the left approached Nicolás Maduro with a rescue package two or three years ago. So it wasn't just right-wing neoliberals, market-oriented, IMF-oriented people, but even folks from the left were telling Maduro, you can at least do some of these things. And Maduro implemented none of these recommendations. So there was a complete mismanagement of the economy. And when the crisis hit, a refusal to introduce necessary correctives. But not everyone agrees with this analysis. George Chicarello Mar, the author of We Created Chavez, doesn't believe that the Maduro government is solely to blame. Many people don't realize that if we really look for the sources of the crisis, it lay in what I call the system, not the government. In other words, 100 years of oil-driven development has deeply perverted the Venezuelan economy so that Venezuela essentially exports a great deal of oil and imports almost everything, food, manufactured goods. And this creates a huge level of dependency. It creates a consumerism among the population. It creates a certain level of expectations. And it really disincentivizes domestic production of even food. And so when you see, for example, the crisis that brought Chavez to power in the 1980s, it was caused by this deep structural problem. And when you see the crisis that really began to become more acute in 2013, the deep sources of it were this same problem. The mismanagement, I think, came in the level of the currency, the attempt to maintain a fixed currency that could not hold up to the black market pressures against it, and which led to and encouraged essentially more corruption, more black market activity, more smuggling. If you control the prices of goods for for example, in Venezuela, then someone will smuggle them across the border and sell them in Colombia. And this heightened and created a cycle of crisis that's really just deepened and become more and more acute since, uh, you know, 2012, 2013 in particular. And so today, Venezuela still doesn't produce what it needs. If it did, then Nicolás Maduro would not have to worry so much about the falling price of oil. Venezuelans would not need to worry about importing billions, you know, of food items to keep the shelves full for their own consumption. But since they're not producing those things, um, they have to import them, and this creates this crisis. I think the underlying condition is the vast mismanagement from Nicolas Maduro and his government. I mean, we can talk a lot about the sanctions, isolation, but at the same time, if you oversee in less than five years an economic collapse, the scale that Venezuela is going through right now, there is something wrong at the very, very top. Stefano Potsaban, freelance journalist who is based in Caracas, Venezuela. Venezuela is an oil country. It's like Saudi Arabia in terms of the economy. 96% of earnings in foreign currency in Venezuela come from the oil industry. Everything that comes in is paid by petrodollars. And in 2008, at the height of the Chavez government, Venezuela would produce 3 million barrels of oil per day. Now it only produces about 1 million. So that's the number one biggest reasons of why situations have been so out of control. Because the government was used to spending a lot of money to indebt itself and organize large programs of social benefits for the vast majority of the population. And then it realized that it didn't have a long-term planning and it didn't have the money to keep it sustainable. And at the same time, there has been a crash in the price of oil, there has been a crash in the oil production, and there has been a crash in every other activity 
that was not oil. We have the collapse of food industry, collapse of any sort of agricultural enterprise, which essentially made things even worse and worse and worse. And now we got to a point where each problem is, is linked to another problem. Leon Guerrero has no time for politics. He's too consumed with trying to make enough from his motorcycle to feed his family. His wife, Andre, and her best friend, Kat, try to bring some beauty to their lives, keeping pride and dignity as their country collapses. But they don't see opposition politicians offering any alternative. The view from their barrio is a daily reminder of the city's historic inequality. The East is where the middle class lives. It's also where you find most of the opposition parties hunkered down behind tight security. Why, after 20 years of socialist rule, was neither Chavez or Maduro able to shift Venezuela away from being an oil-dependent economy? So, at least with Chavez and with Chavismo, there's a theory of this oil dependency. And, and there was a strategy of attempting to develop domestic production and domestic industry to increase independence, to increase what Chavez called food sovereignty, in other words, producing food for Venezuelans. This also involved land distribution with you know the countryside going into cultivation by people who went back to the land to produce. And it also meant building up industries from scratch through state investment of oil money into domestic production, in other words, investing the oil to reduce dependency on oil in the long run. The first thing to say, I think, is that this is incredibly difficult under any circumstances because the every uh, incentive of the Venezuelan economy undermines this. It's cheaper to import things than it is to produce them. And this you know, undercuts these efforts so that when it's time for elections to come around and, and you want to make sure that people are happy, it's much easier to buy a bunch of food from Brazil or Colombia than it is to be producing it domestically. And so there were these efforts, but they were never sufficient and they were up against all the odds. The opposition, by contrast, though, really doesn't have a theory for domestic production. Their goal, if they ever state any kind of economic objectives, is to focus on oil exports, maybe be a little more austere when it comes to spending that money so it's not getting spent on poor people and not getting spent on social welfare, and simply adjusting themselves to fit the contours of global capitalism. This is Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. In 2015, there was an election for the National Assembly, and for the first time since 1999, the opposition won the majority of seats. Yes, it was late 2015, and the opposition did win, and I think that's worth at least pausing on for a moment to realize, of course, this isn't a dictatorship. They won the election. What happened then has become a very complex situation where really instead of legislating, they immediately went on the offensive again to try to topple Maduro. And they refused to listen to the Supreme Court when it told them not to seat three legislators who had been elected under very dubious and fraudulent circumstances. And it's there that you see the beginning of the Supreme Court then declaring the legislature in contempt, the legislature then declaring the Supreme Court in contempt, and a really a standoff that continues to this day. But again, the opposition story is that they refuse to recognize the legislative election. It's not exactly true. The Supreme Court told them not to seat a few legislators. They refused and then have continued to press forward. And Maduro's response to another wave of violent protests that happened after that was to call another election for a constituent assembly. And it was very controversial, but it was really seen as an attempt to try to break this deadlock. It has not broken the deadlock. So what you have instead are these two legislative bodies essentially sitting side by side. It became the dominant party in the National Assembly. 
as the parliament is called in Venezuela. And what we have seen since then is that the government spent quite a bit of effort trying to repress, circumvent, exclude, force the opposition to stay quiet, to stay out of politics, to even leave the country, sending them to jail. So we see a very serious intensification of repressive tactics toward the opposition after 2015, when the opposition was clearly now the new majority. In Venezuela, millions of people have gone on a two-day strike to protest against the unpopular president, Nicolas Maduro, and his plans to change the constitution to consolidate his power. Meanwhile, on the streets of Caracas, protesters wearing gas masks and helmets hurled petrol bombs at police on the first day of a nationwide strike. We need a change of politicians in this country. It can't go on like this. People's rights are being violated all the time. I'm here to protect this country. Maduro needs to go. We want a free Venezuela, the Venezuela I used to know. Well, Maduro's formula to put an end to that massive wave that rocked Venezuela for about three months in 2017 was to create a new legislative body that was the new Constituent National Assembly. Essentially, Maduro has always had the power of the executive power, the presidency. Venezuela is a presidential federative republic, similar to the US or to France, for example, but there is also a legislative chamber, the parliament. Here it's called the National Assembly. And that was in the hands of the opposition since 2015. So what Maduro created in 2017 was an alternative new branch of power that was essentially a, a double up of the parliament but filled up with people that he oversaw and named and organized the elections of. So this was creating another legislative branch, another legislative body, while at the same time still maintaining the, the National Assembly. And this caused, of course, a lot of a mess. We had a lot of trouble trying to report who is actually in charge, who has the, the task of making the laws. But essentially what Maduro was saying is that now that there is a new majority in Congress since 2015 and this majority is against me, I create a new Congress uh, alternative to that and I just do my, the law that I want and I have them promulgated by or issued by the Congress that I want. So what's happened since? Like, how has it worked politically in for these last two years? Uh, I think you're right. It hasn't worked. You know, the, the government, the Maduro government has continued to govern, in other words, to fund social programs, to fund importing goods that people need. But it's really been a state of constant crisis, especially since 2017, but, but honestly, even going further back. And then when you begin to think about the dire economic circumstances, you realize that this crisis has had tremendous economic uh, implications. And when the sanctions, the Trump sanctions came, kicked in, you had really the economy was pushed off the cliff with the blocking of access to financing that would allow for oil production to continue on the, on the level that it has. And so now what you do have is this heightening of a stalemate, this heightening of a crisis, and maybe what was a tacit duality of powers between the two legislatures has come to a head with two people making claims to be head of state. Yes, that's right. Venezuela doesn't just have two competing parliaments, it now also has two competing presidents. Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro has been sworn in for a second term in office. Hundreds of government supporters have gathered here in downtown Caracas. Right behind me stands the Venezuelan Supreme Court, where Nicolas Maduro has been sworn in for his second term as the Venezuela's president. 
May 2018. That was the crucial moment when Maduro essentially organized the presidential elections nine months ahead of the time when it should have happened. Normally in Venezuela, elections are between October and December. When Maduro found himself in a moment of strength at the beginning of 2018, he called on the Electoral Commission to hold new presidential elections as soon as possible. Most of the opposition decided not to participate in the elections. Maduro won that election, but only 20% of Venezuelans actually bothered to vote. And the vast majority of the international community, including Australia, for example, did not recognize the result of the elections. They said these elections are illegitimate because uh, there were no guarantees, there were no international observers, the software company that oversaw the multimedia program to count the vote say that the vote was rigged. Nobody essentially out of Venezuela and its traditional allies recognized the results of that elections. So when in January this year, Maduro inaugurates a new term, most of the international community and the opposition here saw that as, again, a unilateral, illegitimate move from the presidency to essentially validate itself onto power. The new leader of the opposition-controlled National Assembly in Venezuela has accused Nicolas Maduro of usurping the presidency. The opposition boycotted last year's presidential election after several of its leaders were arrested or fled the country fearing prosecution. Addressing the chamber, Juan Guaido says the president's second term due to begin on Thursday would be unlawful. When the protests of 2017 were repressed and failed, the leadership of the political parties took a different approach, which was, let's figure out how we, from Congress, create a constitutional crisis for the president. They knew that in 2018, there was an election in which the president claimed victory despite a lot of fraud. They knew that people weren't protesting anymore. If anything, they were leaving the country in droves. So they were like, well, you know, there is going to be a new term in office, according to the Constitution. The president got reelected and he's supposed to be sworn in in January. And so they came up with this plan. We're going to see whether we have international support. And the moment that we have the international support for this, we're going to declare the swearing-in ceremony illegitimate because Venezuela is supposed to only have presidents democratically elected. And we're going to call the president the usurper because he stole the presidents. And so on January 10th, which was the swearing-in day, they came up with this bombshell that the National Assembly is going to declare the president illegitimate. At that point, the Assembly said, well, because we don't really have a democratically elected president in office. We have Maduro, who usurped this office. The Constitution says that we have an absence of precedent. The president is truly absent, and that means that power needs to be transferred to the president of the National Assembly. And that's the constitutional provision that Juan Guaido used to assumed the interim powers of the presidency by invoking the constitution. Ultimately, it was planned and designed in side negotiating rooms, both in Caracas and abroad. 
The problem is, of course, that now that they have created this dual presidency, if they do not succeed in sustaining street protests, which they have been able to maintain for now, they, they, they called people out into the streets and people have finally started to go back out into the streets. But they now need those protests to, to continue because otherwise it's just a sort of a dispute between politicians rather than a popular rejection of Maduro. Now, let me be clear. Every poll, every sign that exists out there tells us that Maduro is highly unpopular. It's just that a lot of this low level of popularity often chooses to stay home. And now it's a time for them to take the streets again. The opposition has long attempted to connect its calls to the poor and working classes in Venezuela with very little success because those sectors are largely Chavista. But more importantly, because those sectors even as fed up as they may be with the Maduro government, are not necessarily willing as a result to overthrow that government or to, or to participate in protests that they know are insurrectionary protests. Even when many of those sectors voted for the opposition in the National Assembly, and even today when you look at opinion polling, you see that the number one concern by a landslide is economic. It's not political. In other words, people are not asking for the government to go. They're asking for the economy to get better. And what the opposition traditionally does is to overplay its hand, to believe that it's got everyone on its side, and then to shoot itself in the foot in the process. And they seem to be doing something similar today. But the mobilization of the poor is something that's incredibly crucial today. It's happening in poor neighborhoods. People are arguing with their neighbors in poor neighborhoods about what the way forward is. And we need to be you know, attentive to that because those are the kind of explosions that lead to Venezuelan government's falling as in 1989 in the huge you know, protest that brought Chavez eventually to power. As the ruling president, Nicolas Maduro, met with military officials to shore up his support, his opponent engaged them in a different way, urging soldiers not to turn on their fellow citizens. I think most political scientists will tell you that when you reach this point, Everything is going to be determined by the army, which side the army chooses to take. And unless you see a significant defection over to the opposition, Maduro is safe. The United States has taken the extraordinary step of recognizing Venezuela's opposition leader as the country's legitimate president. The Trump administration is calling on embattled socialist Nicolas Maduro to resign. Russia is warning of dire consequences in Venezuela, accusing external forces led by the United States of fueling chaos there by supporting opposition to President Maduro. I think the main risk right now is, especially with the interest of the international community, is the fact that whoever will emerge as winner of this power tussle will have to be so open to foreign economic interest and I'm talking about the United States and uh, European Union on Guaido's side and Russia, China, Iran on Maduro's side, because neither of them, neither Maduro, nor Guaido, nor the opposition, no, nobody can fix the situation in Venezuela without the help, without the alliance from uh, foreign entities, be it uh, the IMF, be it the United States of America, be it China, Russia, or whoever. You need a lot of foreign investment here in order to stop the downward spiral that is caused by the hyperinflation. So I think that one day those foreign interests will, will come to Venezuela and present a bill to pay. And that will be the main risk 
for whoever comes out as the effective new ruler or a new Venezuela. Stefano Pozzaban, freelance journalist based in Caracas. My other guests, Professor of Political Science at Amherst College, Javier Corrales. George Chicarello Ma, visiting scholar at the Hemispheric Institute of Performance and Politics. And Daniel Landsberg Rodriguez, adjunct professor at the Kellogg School of Management. This week marks the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution that occurred in 1979. A podcast tracing the events that led to the revolution and its impact on the Arab world and internationally can be found on the Rear Vision website. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. If you're listening to Rear Vision as a podcast, why don't you check out our back archives? We've been on air for over 10 years, so you'll find most of the main news stories covered. And just one more thing, would you mind commenting or rating us with your podcast server? That way, others interested in history and more than just the headlines will be able to find us. Thanks and keep listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.